You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. I would love to invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter two here this morning. Genesis two, excited about this text. We are continuing in our study here in the book of Genesis. And uh, what we have covered so far in the first chapter is, uh, you know, no big deal, just God creating everything. So the heavens and the earth, God has formed and God has filled. And we saw last week on the sixth day of creation, arguably the crown jewel of all of the creation is his creation of mankind made in his image, both male and female, he made them. And, uh, and so many people honestly tend to view day six as kind of the pinnacle of God's creation, of his creative work. And, and there is for many reasons, but when you really read the full Hebrew text, it is very clear that day six is not the pinnacle, it's day seven. And that's what we're gonna look at here today in Genesis chapter two, in the first three verses, we're gonna look at arguably the pinnacle of it all, which is what happens on the seventh day when God ceases from his work. And there's an interesting bookend, by the way, in this creation account, when you look at Genesis 1-1 and compare it with Genesis 2-1. Genesis 1-1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then we get to 2-1 and it says, thus the heavens and the earth were finished, all of the hosts of them. So there's the bookends here in this Hebrew account that we have. And what you're going to find here on day seven is no more creating. It's all been made. Everything invisible and invisible, everything on the earth and everything in the heavens and the cosmos, God has formed it and he has filled it. He is done. And there will be no more creative work. Simply God resting on the seventh day. And so I want to read, I'd love if you would stand with me if you would, and I want to read the first three verses here as the pinnacle of this creation account and be blessed by the word here. Genesis chapter two, starting in verse one, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. This is the word of God. You can be seated. Three objectives in our time here this morning. One is I want to make a few brief observations just about the structure of this text because it reads really funny, very repetitive. And I wanna just highlight that for a moment, but then I want us to look at um, expositionally here how these three verses flow and what they are telling us about God, because make no mistake about it, God is the center of this text. Man's not even in this one. And we're gonna look at that. And then I want to speak to the issue that many of us are gonna begin asking, some of the questions we're gonna begin asking when we read about this idea of a Sabbath rest, of what does that mean for us? What are the implications for us? And I'm gonna give us just a mini um, theological review of how this theme of Sabbath rest that begins in Genesis 2 plays out and unfolds throughout scripture, 
culminating into what it means for us today and what it really has always been pointing to. So that's what we're gonna do here. I wanna show you though, right out of the gate, just some beautiful structure in this. Because as I mentioned in week one, when Moses is penning this in the Hebrew text, it is written beautifully. It's written in prose. It doesn't mean that this is just Hebrew poetry, but it is written in a literary form for the specific purpose that Israel could understand when they were receiving this orally so they could memorize. And it's written so they could understand the significance of this seventh day. For instance, um, this is day seven in the creation account. What would be in the Hebrew calendar is Saturday, is the seventh day, the final day of the week. And you'll, you wouldn't see this in your English translation, but in Hebrew, there are exactly 35 words in Hebrew in this text, all divisible by seven. You're gonna see that there are three main clauses supported by three main verbs in this text. And each of these clauses have only seven Hebrew words in them. And then what you'll find is that within each of those three clauses of seven words, each of them contain the adjective seventh. And then this whole thing, as it reads in English, is highly repetitive. You're like, how many times are you gonna repeat yourself? It's highly repetitive. And again, why? Because Moses is trying to show something here. What has been received by the Holy Spirit through God himself that is to be recorded right here and given for his people, it's no accident. It's put there on purpose. One, so God's people, these Hebrew slaves in the midst of the wilderness could easily memorize this and hide God's word in their heart but also so they could understand why the seventh day is so different than the first six and how this would come to bear on their hope in the days moving forward. Uh, so why is this different? What's special about this? As it pertains to God and what we see about God in this, there are three reasons why this seventh day is so significant and so special to God and it's according, again, to the three main verbs that are used in this text. And it's really this, three reasons why this is special to God. Because God finishes, God rested, God blesses. This is gonna be our outline for the first section here. God finished, God rested, God blessed. God finished, verse two. Uh, we are told there is no further creative work that is done on day seven. This is the day that the Lord finished, it is done. And in fact, you won't see God fashion or create anything else until after the fall in Genesis 3, when God will fashion clothes for Adam and Eve to cover their nakedness and their shame. Um, God is done creating at this point. In fact, you're gonna go, well, next week in chapter two, God makes Eve. Well, here's how this breaks down. Just so you know, the first three chapters of Genesis are like three camera angles. Chapter one is a wide-angled lens. You're getting the whole thing. Seven days right here, six days of creation, uh, formed and filled, wide angle lens. In chapter two, it's gonna be a close-up shot of one of those days, day six, when God made male and female and we'll get a detailed picture of when he made Eve and when he brought Adam and Eve together in the first marriage. We'll see that uh, here in the next couple of weeks. And then when you get to chapter three, we get an incredibly tight focus. I mean, zoomed all the way in, where we're gonna focus on one specific event that occurred right after man and woman were created. And so that's how this is playing out. And we've just gotten this big overview here. And it's 
concluding with this seventh day that God finished here this work. And it's identified by the number seven, which is going to be significant in Scripture. The number seven, as many of you know, if you're familiar with the text uh, of Scripture at all, you'll, you'll understand there's the theme of sevens plays out quite a bit in the entire Bible. Um, and it's the number for completion, for fullness, for perfection. Uh, for instance, in Genesis 7, you're going to see seven pairs of clean animals uh, that are entering into the ark. In Genesis 41, you'll see in Pharaoh's dream, seven years of plenty and seven years of famine that are given. We get to Matthew 15 and the feeding of the 4,000, you're going to see seven loaves and you're going to see seven baskets left over. Um, you are going to see uh, in John's account, he, he plays with this idea of the sevens um, and showing the seven I am statements of Jesus, seven statements where Jesus uh, said he is the I am statements. You see seven miracles that John focuses on. Of all the miracles that Jesus did, John chooses just seven to focus on. Um, when you get to the end of the Bible, you get to Revelation, you're going to see the seven churches of Revelation. You're going to see the judgments, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. You see sevens play out. It's not because we're messing with uh, da Vinci code here. We're not looking at some Bible code and trying to unlock the mysteries of the Bible. No, the seven is a plain reading. And where do all these sevens come from? Where do they originate from? Genesis chapter two, because this is the day that God completed. It's the day that God finished. And you're going to see an interpretive method that's, that's pointing us to the completion and the perfection and the fullness of God all the way through scripture. What God starts, God finishes. He doesn't go halfway. He doesn't leave anything undone. He completes. He is a promise maker. He is a promise keeper all the way to the end. And we see that. Now, the second theme you see here is that God not only finished, God rested when he finished. Uh, we see that at the end of verse two. In fact, three times we're told in this passage that on the seventh day, God did not work, that he rested. Now, you need to understand this version of rest is different than how you and I would interpret it. Interpret it. When you and I need rest, we need recuperation. We're exhausted. We need to replenish our fuel. We've run out of gas. We need some time to re recuperate. This is not what is happening with God. God is not like man that he is in need of anything. God is not in need of rest. God does not tire. God is fully omnipotent. He's all powerful. He's all present. He's sovereignly sufficient within himself, within the triune God. He's in need of nothing. God is not tired. He's not, doesn't need to kick his feet up. He's oh gosh, the six days just took it out of me, you know, making the heavens and the earth. I just need to sit back for a little bit and binge watch some Yellowstone for just a little bit. I'm tired. This is not what God is doing here. In fact, the Hebrew word for rest is the word Shabbat. We translate it in English, Sabbath. And it literally just means to cease. It just means to stop. It just means God stopped. He didn't have to create anymore. He was done and he stopped. And by the way, there's an interesting um, parallel here. The idea is that God finishes on the seventh day and it's almost as if he steps back to just, Behold all that he has created in its perfection, exactly as he intended it to be. And it's almost an interesting parallel between chapter 1, verse 2, and chapter 2, verse 2. Chapter 1, verse 2 is this picture of the Spirit hovering over the deep. Before anything was formed and filled, there was God the Spirit taking in the work that was about to be. And now in 2, verse 2, same God rests. 
He ceases as if to take in the work that now has been done. It's this beautiful bookend that's right here. God, our work is never done, by the way. You and I have always got work to do. You can take a day off right now, get your Saturday or Sunday off, whatever it is, and you've still got work that you've left undone. All of us do. You're gonna retire one day, it's still gonna be work that needs to be done. You're gonna die one day, and there's still gonna be work that you left undone. Our work is never done, but not so with God. He is finished in this creative work. He is glorified in that his creation is exactly what he intended it to be. He is finished, so he rests. And then thirdly, notice uh, there in verse three, God blessed the seventh day by making it holy. God now memorializes this day as a tribute to his creative work and his perfection in creation by setting it apart from the other six days. In fact, that's the idea behind making it holy. We tend to think of holy, we think of like moral purity and all this. Holy just simply means to set apart, to dignify as one thing over another, to reserve this for a more noble purpose than these other purposes. And this is what God does. Again, it's one of those themes of separating that we see in the narrative account. God separates the seventh day from the other six. It is holy, it is set apart, it is blessed. And note, it is not just a person or a place that is blessed right here. Yes, we have made many attempts in the state of Texas to argue this is exactly when God blessed Texas, was right here. And I agree, yes and amen. Although we forgot some parts in it, but um, our, our, our beauty is not what it could be. But nonetheless, God has blessed this day. And it's not a day, it's not a, a person, it's not a geography that is blessed here, it is time. It is a day, a 24 hour period is blessed here by God. And this Saturday in the Jewish calendar would simply be a memorial reminder from this day forward that every Saturday when it rolls around, God made the earth and the heavens in six days and on the seventh day he rested. It is a perfect universe that glorifies him. That's what it's about. And I want you to note, though, there is a hint in this text that this memorial, even though the seventh day, the 24 hours, is blessed, there's something missing in this account that, is not, that was present in the first six days. There's not a time marker here. It doesn't say, and then in the evening, in the morning. And the idea that many feel is that um, Moses is indicating that this idea of rest actually never ends. God's rest was complete here and carries on. It is almost suggesting an eternal divine Sabbath that was to be enjoyed by God's creation. In fact, if you think about it, the very first full day of creation of man and woman was spent enjoying the rest of God. In their work, they are enjoying the rest of God. It is a beautiful picture of eternal rest that God provides for his creation um, hold on to that thought because we're going to circle back to it. The question for us is, okay, if this is what God has done, he's finished, he's rested, he's blessed. It's this eternal rest that is given to his perfect creation. Um, what are we to do with the seventh day? How does this pertain to us now? Because let's be honest, there is nothing in these three verses about us. There's no command to take a day off after a long week. 
There's no Sabbathing here for man and woman. They're just simply enjoying the fruit of God's rest. There's no mention of any decree that they had to worship God on the Sabbath day. That's not in this text. And in fact, you won't see the word Sabbath again in your Bible until long after the fall. When we get to Exodus 16, that's the next time the word Sabbath will show up. And it's interesting because when you get to Exodus 16, I'm fast forwarding the tape here, what happens in Exodus 16, God's people are in the wilderness, just been delivered from bondage. It has been 400 years of slavery. The, the patriarchs have come and gone. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and his sons have come and gone. And here we are with God's people in the wilderness being led by Moses, post-Egypt, pre-Canaan. And none of them, as far as we know, has ever worshiped on a Saturday. There's not been a decree in the scriptures given prior to this. And there's not a decree here. What we see in Exodus 16 is almost like a, a, a movie trailer of what's about to come. The first mention of Sabbath is that every day God was feeding his people with manna from heaven, dropping this manna under the ground and the people would gather it up. And what's interesting in Exodus 16 is it says that God provided manna for them every single day of the week except for the Sabbath day. Because instead... God gave them a double portion of food on Friday that they were to prepare so they wouldn't spend the Sabbath gathering the food. Now, there's no decree there. It's just, an, it's just said this is what was happening. It's not until about four chapters later in Exodus 20 that we get the first command. I'd love you to turn there with me if you would to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus 20 is significant because it's known as the Decalogue. It is what we would call the Ten Commandments. They're in the wilderness. God takes Moses up on Mount Sinai and delivers for him a new covenant, which will be an old covenant, but it's a covenant that he is going to give to his people in establishing this now post-deliverance relationship with his people. And he lists these 10 commandments that are really representative of an entire law that God is giving his people that will mark them off as distinct from anybody else in this covenantal promise that he's giving them. And here is the fourth commandment in Exodus 20, starting in verse eight, we have the fourth commandment that is listed, the one about the Sabbath. And it says this, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And on it you shall do you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, even the sojourner who is with you at your gates. For in six days, and he quotes Genesis 2 here, for in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. This is the fourth commandment out of the ten. And at the center of this command, what I want you to see is the issue of trust. The issue of trust with God's people. This command for Israel is what would set them apart really distinct from other nations. In that, they were to take one of the seven days and rest and not work. Now, that was a bit different from the agrarian culture around them. When you're in an agrarian culture, an agricultural society, you don't have a day to waste. 
You're always out working the fields. You're always out preparing because so goes your work, so goes your livelihood. And every day was viewed as a day to get ahead and to ensure your own livelihood. And here God comes along, establishing a new relationship with his delivered people and says, six days you're gonna work and one day you're not. That had to sting a little bit because that's one less day we're gonna have to do our work. And it's interesting, even today, this would still make up a very bad business model for many corporations because you got seven days, that's seven days of productivity. We can be earning a bottom dollar on this thing. We don't have time to take off. That's why Chick-fil-A gets shamed so much is how can you do that, right? But I've seen it when I was living in California, I toured Facebook, Google, Dropbox, toured all their headquarters and they have built their headquarters specifically to retain their people there as long as they can so that the productivity can go up and they've created in-house restaurants, They've, they all ride on hoverboards from one office to another. They have hammocks everywhere. They have PlayStations. It's just game central. So you can live up there if you had to. Because we always have to be productive. And now God says, you're to take a day off. Now, please understand, this is not God telling his children, this is a day to nap. It's not what this is about. This is God, the creator of the heavens and earth who made everything in six days, saying to my people, you're gonna have to trust me. That if you rest in me, I can do more in your six days than you can do in seven. You're gonna have to trust in my work, not your work. And this will be a theme that is gonna carry on. It's God saying, you need to trust in my works that they are sufficient over yours. And what I want you to see, though, and this is what's important, is that this command as the fourth commandment of the 10 is more than just a day of rejuvenation. It's more than just a day ceasing from labor and resting and remembering that God is creator, though it is. This command in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, was actually pointing to something greater. And you don't see it here in Exodus 20, but you do in Exodus 31. So flip over there real quick. Exodus 31 is a now... After God has given the full breadth of the law, he is going to resummarize not just the whole law, but he's going to resummarize the fourth commandment as something unique within the 12, within the 10. And I want you to look and see if you see what's different, what the fourth commandment is actually for. Starting in verse 12 of chapter 31. And the Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a, underline the next word, sign. Ooh, pay attention to that. This is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctifies you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it, listen to this, shall be put to death. Oof. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. 
It is a, underline it again, sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Now, did you catch that? The Sabbath is not just the fourth commandment. It is the sign for all the commandments, for the covenant that's being made. A sign is a shadow that is pointing to a substance that is more important, that embodies the reason why this thing is here. It's like a billboard that is pointing to an actual event. When you're driving down 35 and you see a billboard advertising a company, the billboard is not the company. It's not the substance. It's pointing you to the substance. And this is what the fourth commandment is meant to do for all the commandments. It's a sign. God loves signs. He uses them to ratify and to signify the covenantal promises that he makes with his people. In the Noahic covenant, when God flooded the earth, he promised Noah he would never flood the earth again and he used a sign to ratify that promise. Remember what it is? It's a rainbow. I know we're, we don't understand anymore what a rainbow is for. It's been hijacked, but the rainbow is a sign for the Noahic covenant. Every time, you see, every time it rains, and the rainbow comes out, it reminds you God is faithful to his promises. He will not do this again. The Abrahamic covenant, when God promised that through Abraham's seed, the Messiah would come and in him, in that seed of the Messiah, all the nations would be blessed. He uses the sign of circumcision on the male anatomy of Abraham because that signifies the covenantal promise through his seed. And now here with the Mosaic covenant, when God establishes his law after delivering his people, God establishes a sign of the Mosaic covenant and it is the Sabbath. It is his people ceasing from their work every Saturday. Now the question is why the Sabbath for a sign for the Mosaic covenant? And the point is this, the 10 commandments, the law of God that was given was the covenantal promise of God's salvific relationship with his people. You, I have delivered you. I've set you apart. This is how you're being set apart. Obey these commands and you will be blessed and you will enter into my eternal rest that was lost in Genesis 3. The rest that was established in Genesis 2, lost in chapter 3. If you obey this covenant, you'll be blessed and enter into my rest once again. If you disobey these commandments, you will be cut off and you will not enter into that rest. The penalty for your disobedience is being cut off from that rest, which is why the consequence for breaking the Sabbath, that sounds so unfair. So you, you work on, on Saturday and now you got to die. It's because Saturday, the, the Sabbath was the sign of the whole law, which said, obey and be blessed, disobey and be cursed. If you violate this as the sign, it is your own death. That's a pretty big deal. What should Israel have done in this moment? They should have looked at the commands of God and went, we are absolutely hosed. There's no way we're going to keep these. I, I can't do this. If this is the perfect reflection, oh God, of who you are and us imaging you, we're going to fail. We've already failed. Saturday or no Saturday, I'm going to break this thing. 
And they should repent in heart and go, oh God, that you would provide for us a substitute, not a temporary sacrifice to atone for these sins, but a permanent sacrifice, a permanent substitute who would come and take our place and fulfill all these things for us. If only such sacrifice existed. That's what they should have done. But instead, you know what they did? They doubled down on the Sabbath. They went, okay, so we can't work on the Sabbath. Let's make sure we don't so we're not cut off. What does it mean to not work? And over time, by the time Jesus enters the picture, the religious leaders of Israel had created 39 different categories of rules for what it meant to not work on the Sabbath to ensure that they would never violate it. And they kept adding more, hundreds of laws under each category such as you were forbidden to look into a mirror on Saturday that was affixed to a wall because that would be considered a work of looking at yourself. And so therefore you can't do that. Such as the law forbid carrying anything on the Sabbath, that was a work. And so, okay, so I, we can't carry a handkerchief with, you, with us. That would be carrying. So if we sew it onto our garment, then we're technically not carrying it. Oh, but we can't sew it because that would be a work. So we'll have Gentiles come in and do this from other nations and they can sew this on for us and therefore we're avoiding work. It sounds absurd. Hundreds of laws, they're still in place today for Orthodox Jews. Every year that I go to Israel, I'm always there on a Sabbath and I'm in a hotel and the same thing plays out on Sabbath day, on Saturday. If you go into a hotel, you don't press a button because that's considered a work. So every floor is highlighted. It looks like elf. Oh, a Christmas tree. They're all, they're all highlighted and the elevators have to stop at every floor so an Orthodox Jew doesn't have to press a button. And this is what's happened. They put up markers around the city, these poles that mark how far you can walk on a Saturday called a Sabbath day journey, about two thirds of a mile. And there's a perimeter all around every city telling a Jew how far they can walk. And if they exceed that by one millimeter, they have committed a work. And so they, they've created all these laws. Even today, even outside of Orthodox Judaism, uh, there are others known as strict Sabbatarians who've tried to do the same thing in Gentile form like Seventh-day Adventists who strictly keep a Saturday observance still to this day in keeping with Orthodox Jewish law. Even Christian Sabbatarians have just switched this to Sunday and said, man, we can't do anything on Sunday. It's lockdown and no work at all. And, and, uh, and so others have gone down this path, but here's the deal. In seeking to obey this command, the spirit of command, which was the sign that it's pointing to, has been totally missed, totally missed. And so in comes Jesus because we need help. Jesus incarnates into the flesh and everything changes. Jesus comes not to eradicate the law, but to fulfill it, to do what the law had ultimately pointed towards and intended on our behalf. And so you see these instances throughout the New Testament. I'll just highlight one of them where Jesus is challenged for how he is acting on the Sabbath by the religious leaders that he has violated their commands. And so one instance is in Mark chapter two, Jesus and his disciples are gleaning from the fields on the Sabbath, and that was strictly forbidden. Um, and the Pharisees come and 
challenge him and Jesus highlights, he starts reframing for them. You've missed the point of the Sabbath. Let me remind you in Mark 2, 27, the Sabbath was, was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, the Sabbath was not established to be a burden which God's people had to conform to and perform in order to please God. The Sabbath was always meant to be a delight in which God's people would rest in God and enjoy him. And so you have it backwards on what the Sabbath is for. And then in the very next verse, Jesus tells them, the reason I can do anything I want is because, according to Mark 2.28, Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. I was there in Genesis 2 when I created it. I was there in on Sinai in Exodus 20, when I commanded it. And I am here in Mark chapter two to fulfill it. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Jeremiah 31, just as it promised that Jesus had come to be a better mediator of a better covenant than the Mosaic covenant. He would do for us what the law could not do. And he invites us to find our rest in him. Not by keeping outward obedience to the law, but rather by putting our trust in him. That's why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. All who labor and heavy laden, it's not referring right here to our physical works. It's referring to those who felt like they had to keep working works of righteousness in order to please God and it only exhausted them. Anybody ever been there? You're just trying to check the Ten Commandments, trying to attend church, and you just got these check boxes so that God will be pleased with you. You're treating him like a lucky rabbit's foot, and I just, I'm rubbing the genie's lamp, and I'm just going, hey, I'm just going to do these things, and then you'll be happy with me. And it's exhausting because none of us can ultimately do it. That's what was being taught to Israel by their leaders. And so Jesus is countering those leaders and said, All you, who are, who labor, who are heavy laden. He says, come to me and I will give you what? Sabbath. I will give you Shabbat. It's not found in just the day. It's found in me. What it was pointing to was me. You come to me and I'll give it to you. You don't have to earn it. I will just straight deposit it into your account and you can rest. Take my yoke upon you. Yoke was what animals carried to pull heavy loads. Said so the Pharisees have been giving you these heavy burdens to pull in the name of the Lord. But I'm telling you, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, disciple of me, because I am gentle, lowly in heart. And when you do so, when you put your trust in me, you will find Sabbath for your soul. Only in Jesus can we trade the yoke of works earned righteousness for the yoke of his grace received righteousness, which he worked on our behalf and he satisfied perfectly on the cross. In other words, the true rest that you were created for doesn't come from your works. It comes from resting in Christ's works. If you want to experience true eternal Sabbath for your soul, here's the formula. He works we repent. He forgives. 
we rest. It's as beautiful as that. Now, the book of Hebrews, I'm going to land our text work here. The book of Hebrews brings this all together for us to show what ultimately Genesis 2 was pointing towards. Flip over to Hebrews 4 real quick with me, if you would. There at the end of your Bible, back of your Bible, Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews is showing how Jesus is better in every regard. He did what the law could never do. Chapter three is recapping how Israel, when they were wandering through the wilderness, they were aiming towards Canaan as the promised land. And they viewed that if only they could make it to the promised land, if only they could get into Canaan, then they would enter into God's rest. No more oppression, no more toil, no more work. And that was true, but Israel disobeyed God and therefore they did not enter into God's rest. And so the question is, is there still an eternal rest to be found? Am I always just gonna have to keep working or is there true, is that eternal rest still on the table? And Hebrews four says, oh yeah, there is. And in fact, four verse one, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, because it does, even though Israel lost the promised land in the wilderness, those who are in Christ have not lost the rest. It still stands. Let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For the good news came, listen to that, gospel. Good news came to us just as it did to them. There was a promise, but the deal is the message they heard didn't benefit them. Why? Because they were not united to that promise by faith. They were united to it by works and they failed. This is the key for receiving eternal rest. Verse three, that those who believe will enter into that rest. He goes on to say in verse nine and 10, so then there does remain a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. We're not talking about just your physical works. We're talking about your spiritual works, trying to earn the favor of God. If you will only believe, then the promise is still for you that you too will enter into the rest of God. The question is, believe what? Well, the answer is not a what, it's a who, and it's in verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. What is the point of Hebrews chapter four? It's this, God gave us eternal rest in Genesis 2 that had no time marker that was to last forever. But we lost it in Genesis 3, as we're going to see in the coming weeks, through our rebellion and sin that cut us off from the rest of God. Ever since, God's people have tried to earn that rest back by working for it, and they never got it. But the promise for us today that the the Mosaic Covenant was pointing to is that if you'll just believe and trust in the provided substitute that God was gonna give, you'll find your rest in him and you can cease from your works. That's what Hebrews is telling us. Jesus is our Sabbath rest. Question, where does that leave us for for today concerning the Sabbath? Because I know some still have questions. Is this law still binding? Should we be taking every Saturday off? Is it Sunday now? What do we know? to be true about observing this. Let me just give you a quick couple of facts and just a final exhortation. Couple quick facts to be aware of. The fourth commandment, ironically, is the only commandment not repeated in the New Testament. 
The other nine commandments are all reaffirmed. The fourth commandment is not reaffirmed. There are no Sabbath rules in the New Testament. There's no instruction about behavior. There's no warnings against violations of it, nothing. And I think the reason is that Hebrews 4 has told us is because Jesus came to fulfill it. He is our rest. It doesn't mean that the law is eradicated. It just means he fulfilled it for you. So you find your rest in him, ultimately. In addition to that, Galatians 4 tells us that we have no obligation to go back to the Mosaic law as our source of covenantal salvation and relationship with God. The only, the only substance of our salvation is in Jesus Christ, not the Mosaic law, not our adhering to it. It is in Christ fulfilling it for us and us resting in him. Galatians 5 tells us that even circumcision was abolished as a command in keeping with the Abrahamic covenant because Christ has fulfilled that. Likewise, Colossians 2 tells us um, that Christ, in Christ, have abolished adherence to any feasts or festivals um, or even holy days, including the Sabbath, as a means for your salvation. It is found in Jesus alone. And Romans 14 tells us, literally, that we can observe the Sabbath however we want, as long as it is used in faith with a sincere conscience towards the exaltation of God and Jesus Christ. And so I think the point here, I think the strict law of having to observe the Sabbath in order to earn the merit of God and receive the rest of God, it is no longer binding because we have found it in Jesus Christ. Our rest is in him. He fulfilled it. He is our Sabbath. But I do think there's some practical takeaways. I do think that the, com the command of the Sabbath still stands in terms of what it can point us to just on this side of the cross, leveraging another day, a seventh day out of the week to reposition our framework on rest. And I think both physically and spiritually, physically speaking, I think every one of us who are in Christ Jesus, where possible, should have a day off where we cease from our labor that we might reflect and remember and worship God as both creator and as redeemer. In fact, some people have used Saturday and Sunday in our Western culture. Saturday is the day to remember God as creator and Sunday to remember God as redeemer in light of Christ's resurrection. Regardless, I think every one of us have an opportunity where possible to leverage it for that purpose. Now that's hard for us to do in the West. We don't like stopping. We love to work. We work because it has become an idol of our hearts. In other words, our work oftentimes is not just something we do, it's an identity that we try to embrace. The average American in an average year, it has been found works on average 137 more hours than the Japanese, 260 hours more than the British, 499 hours more than the French. Not surprising. <laughs> the point is though, we are a people who never stop. It's been estimated that 75% of us sleep with a phone right next to our bed. And 90% of us that do, it's the first thing that we check when we wake up. It's the first thing that grabs our affections. 37% of Americans take fewer than seven days of vacation a year. 25% of those, when they do take vacation, they don't shut it off. They still check email. They still answer calls. They still work. 
And this is, this is just America. Don't even get me started on Dallas. And yet, as a church, we're supposed to have a totally different worldview on this. And yet, for most of us, we don't really look distinct from the culture around us. We entertain the same idol. In fact, it's almost kind of a badge of honor. Test this theory this week. Whenever you ask somebody in passing, hey, how you doing? What is our response? I'm good. Busy. Good. I do it all the time. That's what we do. It's, it's almost become a moniker for our identity. It's a badge of honor. We brag about how busy we are. We associate it as our identity. How are you doing? Busy. Ha ha ha. Like, cool. John Ortberg once said, busyness isn't a disordered schedule. It's the fruit of a disordered heart. And this is why Sabbath breaking and workaholicism is not just an inherently physical issue. It's an inherently spiritual one. Our overwork culture is not just rooted in productivity. It's rooted in identity. Who do you trust? Who do you rest in? Therefore, what we need most in a Sabbath is not just rest. It's rest in Christ. That's what a Sabbath is for. If all your Sabbath is, is simply having a day where you can take off work, fill it with leisure, errands, and binge watching the latest episode of whatever, we've totally missed it. It is a day off that is meant to remind ourselves that God is God and we are not. That he is the one who created all things, therefore he is the one that can sustain all things in your busy schedule. It is a reminder that it is not my work that makes me who I am. It is my redeemer, Jesus Christ, who makes me who I am. Find a day to cease from your physical work, if possible, where you can remind yourself that God as creator is enough for you. And in doing so, remind yourself that Jesus as redeemer is enough for you. You don't have to work anymore. He has worked on your behalf. Rest in him, be affirmed in him, and be freed. I don't know who's coming to this room weary. I imagine a lot of us. Weary from stress, busy schedule. Yeah, you need rejuvenation. We do. We were not, we are souls, our bodies were not created to work eternally on this side of heaven like God's. We need rest. And that's a gift from the Lord to us to receive. Some of you have come in here and you are burdened because you have been so busy trying to earn the favor of God. And you need to hear this morning, there is a rest for you that is a gift from your creator who loves you and who has sent his son for you to die on the cross for you that you might turn from your sin, turn from your idolatry and put your trust in him as savior and redeemer and find rest for your soul. Oh, may that be good news to you today. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus Christ. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15 a.m., and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.